0: To the Classic Rock Podcast for September. Uh, just a reminder you can catch up with all of the previous editions of the podcast on the uh, newly designed website over at uh, www.theclassicrockpodcast.com, uh, where you find not only the shows, but we've also got the tracks of the week, news, and various other video features as well. What is in this month's show? Well, it's 50 years since the death of Jimi Hendrix. We've got a special feature coming up hearing from some of the real blues legends as well as Archive from Jimmy himself. There's a couple of other notable anniversaries as well. Black Sabbath, 50 years ago, appeared for the very first time on British television on Top of the Pops. It's also the 50th anniversary of the very first Glastonbury Festival, which was the Pilton Festival back then. And to get in, it would cost you a king's ransom one pound and including in the ticket price back then was all the milk you could drink as well from the farm that is to come a little bit later we're gonna start though with this <coughs>
1: Goat's head suit. The Rolling Stones on Rolling Stone Records and Tapes. Yeah,
0: well, Rolling Stones. Don't you love those uh, 1970s voiceovers? The Rolling Stones uh, this month not only opened their very own store on the uh, iconic Carnaby Street, but they also released an expanded deluxe version of... What uh, Rolling Stone magazine, in fact, many others believe to be the most misunderstood album of their careers up to then, Goat's Head Soup. Just reading some of the reviews, few liked the album, did they? It did have Angie, of course, which was part written, whilst Keith Richards was in a Swiss rehab clinic trying to kick his heroin addiction. Uh, it was recorded in Jamaica, partly it said, by Keith Richards, as it was one of the only places that would actually let them in. Well, dark and brooding it might be, but it also, for the most part, was excellent, as you can hear from the opening track. with Mr. D from the uh, album Goatsetsu, which has had the the deluxe treatment and is uh, well worth a listen. Great album. Uh, Let's take a look at what is in the press then for this month. Rolling Stone has on its front cover the Beatles as they chronicle the period that led to the end of the Beatles. Now... If you've got a record collection which is gathering dust in the attic, then now is the time to get it out. Record Collector magazine has a list of the 200 most valuable records in the world at the moment. And if you've got a copy on ten-inch Acetate of the 1958 recording by the quarry men of That'll Be the Day and In Spite of All the Danger... Then break out the champagne, because uh, in spite of all the danger, it was written by McCartney Harrison and had John Lennon on the guitar. It was the first ever release where the trio were actually on record. Its value, if you've got one of these, is 200 grand into the uh, realms of the slightly more realistic any aging punks out there who've got a collection of early sex pistols uh, singles and albums might have a gem or two stashed away there as well Uh, god save the queen for example on a&m not emi if you've got one of those eight grand is uh, what it's worth. Uh, Look, at there's a whole batch of special editions out in the last few weeks. Uncut have done a Grateful Dead Ultimate Music Guide. Uh, Good reading. I've never really had the time to uh, delve into the band, but uh, I did, certainly, after reading this. uh, Mojo have uh, two recent Led Zeppelin collections, special editions of the early days and the latter days. Uh, Both stuff with uh, interviews and uh, great photography, of course, of the time. Uh, q magazine have also done a led zeppelin special uncut have the stones front cover or rather it's uh, jagger and richard's goat's head soup is their main feature also interviewed is uh, patty smith so jagger and richard's talking goat's head soup when they left the uk in 71 he said uh, they were broke and owed a lot of money to the Inland Revenue. They ended up in Jamaica at Kingston's Dynamic Sound Studios, which was incidentally the same place that Paul Simon had recorded Mother and Child Reunion. One of the tracks that finally appears on this album is Scarlet, The Stones with Jimmy Page. Jagger admitted work needed to be done, To make it fit for purpose, he said it sounded horrendous when the label sent it to me, so obviously it has been remixed. Jimmy Page added, he said it was great to have done it, Uh, it's brilliant what Mick Jagger has actually done with this, and uh, well, what do you think? Have a listen. Versions of that track on this expanded edition. There's the uh, War on Drugs remix and one involving the killers. The best one though, is the one that you have just heard. Now, also in conversation is Tony Iommi, and good reason for the chat as well. Fifty years ago this month, it was actually on September the twenty-fourth, to be exact. A a programme called Top of the Pops on the BBC in the UK showed a band called Black Sabbath perform this. that was Tony Iommi and Giza Butler talking, remember it very well. Iommi recalled, he said, he got us a really different audience, which was screaming girls. We didn't really like it, he said, because uh, as far as we were concerned, we were serious musicians. It did feel strange, though. We were on with Scylla Black and Cliff Richard. Uh, Giza Butler added, he said, we were getting all these uh, girls coming to our gigs, climbing on the stage, molesting us whilst we played. He said, that was the good bit. Uh, but we knew that if we carried on like it, we would be just another pop band. A few things that you might not have known about the song. Tony Iomi recorded it with a black eye after getting into a fight. And Sabathur didn't actually release another single for two years until uh, Iron Man. And they never made the top ten again. So credibility fully restored. Uh, Mojo Magazine have got the Beatles front cover as well they feature rubber sole they uh, also give plenty of space to the Rolling Stones as well and when you look this month across all of the magazines, it's amazing how much Led Zeppelin, Stones and Beatles are actually present in all of them now, whilst we're with Mojo, we're flagging up the fact that they're the only ones who actually mention the fact that it's 50 years ago, this September, that the Glastonbury Festival was called. Three months or so previous to this, back in uh, 1970, was the Bath Festival of Blues and Progressive Music. Michael Levis, the man, of course, who owns Worthy Farm, uh, he was there. When he left, he said... Well, it just hit me for six. I turned to Jean, which was his wife, and said, I'm going to do one of those on the farm. Her reply, "And be silly. You wouldn't know how. And as we said, three months later, the uh, festival got underway. The ticket price was a pound, plus as much milk as you could drink. And the opening and closing act on that very day were a Bristol band. They were described as the missing jewel in the crown that is British pop music and they have a real cult following not only in the uk but around the world they are stack rich i did actually try to find the set list on the day their opening set list and the closer but i couldn't find it so uh, you're gonna have to put up with this this is dora the explorer Uh, that leads us into a classic rock magazine this month. Motorhead Ace of Spades pose that adorns the cover inside, fitting tribute to Pete Way, as well, of course, he passed away last month. And there is an interview with Slade, Lee, Hill, Powell, and Holder. Not in the same room, obviously, all talking about the band's incredible career. Remember, in five years back in the 70s, they had 17 top 20 hits. Six made number one. And this, remember, was in an era when singles used to sell, well, potentially millions. Noddy Holder summed up the uh, glam rock period. He said the miners, the gravediggers, electricians, bakers, they were all on stride. The telly went off at 10 p.m. at night. Glam rock was a response of that. Don Powell added, he said we were just four scumbags from Wolverhampton, but we made it onto Top of the Pops. And on that infamous night, when uh, Noddy rocked up in tartan trousers, ankle length, of course, uh, tartan waistcoat with a tartan top hat to go with it. Dave Hill was attired in what Steve Marriott described as a metal nun Outfit, and Jim's reaction to this was, he simply said, "I'm not going on television with you dressed like that." The rest, of course, is history. And they went on, of course, to make movies as well, didn't they? In Flame, which was called the Citizen Kane of rock movies, tongue in cheek, of course, by uh, the BBC's movie correspondent Mark Kermode. And then, just when you thought it was all over for Slade, at the end of the 1970s, there was the great comeback. Beginning in 1980, after Ozzy Osbourne pulled out of Reading, the promoters called Slade, and they, quote, tore the place up. The hits came back, who will ever forget, We'll Bring the House Down. Fabulous band. I think it's high time, actually, we did a a proper glam rock show. Uh, What about a song from Slade, then, to wrap it all up? Well, it is September And despite the fact that uh, Merry Christmas Everybody has been played 57 million times on Spotify, we're not going to play that. Instead, though, we will stay in the 1980s, and we will stay around the November-December period. It was a song that was uh, number one all over the world, but it didn't make number one in the UK, surprisingly. Anyway, lighters at the ready. Here we go. Ago this September the 18th, Sir Jimi Hendrix died, and coming up now, we're going to be looking back at his career. We archive interviews and comment from some blues greats, including the Isley Brothers, BB King, buddy guy Jeff Beck, as well as Hendrix himself. Plus, I spoke to author Aiden Pruitt, who has just released a book called Our Jimmy, which is a collection of interviews that he made with those that were closest to Jimmy on not only a personal, but on a professional level as well. First, though, just to get you in the mood... Well, back in 1964, Ronnie Isley offered Jimmy an audition after being recommended by Joseph Harrington Jr., better known, of course, as Joe Tex. Here, then, are the brothers Ernie and Ronnie Isley talking about that time and uh, memories of seeing and hearing Jimmy for the first time.
3: Kelly and Ronald uh, were looking for a uh, guitarist to. Uh, play in the band because the guitar player that my brothers had in the band had quit. And they heard about this guy in the village and uh, played very well. And they just found him and, uh, hey man, play something for me. I can't. Uh, my guitar's in the pawn shop. <laughs> Get this guitar out. Play something for me. I can't tight. because <laughs> uh, my guitar doesn't have any strings on it. And then well, we bought the strings. And
1: then he was, he was saying, man, I heard all about you guys. And he was putting the strings on the guitar. And I was listening. And he said, uh, and I,
3: as he got the string, he turned it, the guitar was turned around, and he's left-handed, you know.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Turn, and, I was, and he started, uh, he said, I like that song that y'all had called Twist and Shout. And he started playing it.
1: I said, oh, my.
3: you know. We
1: had it right away, right
3: away. I could introduce you to the rest of the brothers in the band. Uh, we got uh, rehearsals, you know, uh, in a couple of days. I can't make rehearsals in New Jersey because I do not have a place to stay. <sighs> All right, these are your worldly goods here? Come on with us and you can stay in a spare bedroom we have at my mother's house. So they're, they're leaving and they say, you know, by the way, you know, Jimmy, you play very well, but the guitar you have is kind of scruffy looking. If you're gonna play with us, we gotta get you a new axe. Really? He's like, yeah, what kind do you want? Can I have a white Stratocaster? Yes. Oh, my God. So, when he comes into the house, to our house for the first time, he has a brand-new guitar with a brand-new guitar case, and he plays it like this. And he plays, uh, I never heard, I'm 11 years old at the time, I never heard, and all the musicians I had heard, never heard anybody play a guitar like that. And uh, when we did our first gig, man, it, 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 it just changed the whole band. It changed the whole band. He stood out in front of them, man, and like people went crazy over him, you know. And uh, he had uh, um, stage presence. He had a good sense of humor. He was um, respectful and polite. He learned very fast. He would start a band before the first rehearsal was over. And, uh, you know, f- from, like, the jump, he was, given, he was given preferential treatment, which, you know, some of the guys in the band it rubbed in the wrong way, but place, <laughs> Because it turns out that that person, that you never know who you're dealing with or who you're rubbing elbows with. The night that the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan for the first time on our couch is me on the left side, Marvin, youngest brother, on the right side and Jimi Hendrix in the middle. And when Ed Sullivan said, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles, there was no clap of fun. And a couple of days after that, two or three days after that, there was a meeting with the whole band. And amongst other things, Kelly said, now this new English band changed everything. And uh, you know, I don't know what it's gonna be like for, even for Elvis himself, but I think we are gonna be all right because they do Shout and Twist and Shout. And uh, they got two guitar players. But we got Jimmy. And when he said, but we got Jimmy, I looked over at Jimmy and Jimmy was grinning from ear to ear at that remark.
0: (laughs) It was uh, Ernie and Ronnie Isley talking there of the early memories of Jimi Hendrix, who would go on to play with their backing band called the IB Specials. And two other blues legends, Buddy Guy, who still at 84, plays regularly and the late B.B. B. King also remembered the time that they first set eyes and ears on a very young Jimi Hendrix.
5: Who was that place called on uh, 48th and 8th Street? Was it the scene? The scene in the basement, because you came there once when I was playing there. It was in the basement there, the Chamber Brothers, yeah. you, mm-hmm. and... Uh, <coughs> And I didn't know who he was, and I was about must have been about 24 then, twenty-five. How come you
1: keep mentioning ages
5: Because I'm trying to trying to keep this Alzheimer's. I think you're on. trying to
1: throw bricks at me. No, no,
5: no. But in, anyway, a uh, Dick Waterman <laughs> was uh, had contacted me then, and and I had to get guitar behind my head, you know, and I'm like uh, trying to get some attention mostly. You did. And uh, somebody had a tape recorder, and they was like. That's Jimi Hendrix. And I had had a couple of shots, you know, and I'm trying to get me Go one of these the hippie gals. said, <laughs> <in. That's> exactly <laughs> what I said. I said, get out of my damn way. Who in the hell is Jimi Hendrix? And he started waving and plugging up his wah-wah pedal. He said he said, I just canceled a gig. I want to get a chance to play with you. I'm Hendrix. I said, who the hell is that? And somebody said,
2: that's Hendrix, man. Be cool,
5: that's, dude. Be cool, <laughs> Hendrix, Yeah. So uh, I finally stopped playing, and he plugged it up and went to went to work on it, and I said, well, maybe I should know you then. And from that day on, we, we came on because we had some conversations together after that, and that was like about maybe two and a half years before he passed away. Well,
1: I first met him at Tom Couch's place in Mobile. In
5: Mobile, yeah, yeah. And wow. guess
1: what he was doing? He was in the rhythm section for Little Richard. Yeah. That's yeah. how I first met him. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And they didn't care too much about blues because little Richard was so electrifying. Oh, yeah. Boy, when he got through, yeah. everybody's getting ready to leave. Yeah. <laughs> but we had intermission, kind of like he like were saying, you know, for yeah. us on the road, it was what you play 30 and you're off. Right. Um, right. Uh, the union thing. Mm-hmm. But Jimmy was quiet when I met him. When, when I saw him, he didn't drink. He didn't drink or smoke or anything. And I wasn't drinking that much then. So we go in the dressing room, and we just sit in there. You know, like two stools in there. So finally he says, uh, B.B., I've been listening to you for a while. Mm-hmm. And I said, to him, I said, really? Mm-hmm. And then he told me his name. But I noticed he was left-handed. He didn't play like we do. Yeah. Yeah. He's left-handed. Play this, mm-hmm. no, yeah, this way. Mm-hmm. And so I was asking, him, why didn't he change the strings? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he said, well, this is just the way I learned, and that's how I met Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And he was a very nice, I thought he was, yes, very he was. nice he was. He was. person, very nice. And I hear no more from him till after he had gone to England, and that's when I started hearing Jimmy Hendrix, Jimmy. Yeah. And so it was, and yeah, I know him,
5: Yeah,
1: you know, but I never did get a chance to speak to him again. Well, that is the,
0: the views of the establishment, the, the blues royalty. What about the young guitar hotshots of the time? What does Jeff Beck remember of Jimi Hendrix?
6: It's just a, a, almost beyond human, really. I, he, he whispered, he hardly ever said, any he never shouted or... You know, sort of short sound bites. I, and I try to keep up with him for three days uh, without sleep. And we'd go to a club, play there, and then he would have breakfast at four or five in the morning. And then I think we'd go to our separate hotels. i go back to his hotel, we'd play. Then he goes and has more breakfast. Then he's off somewhere else. In three days, I, I thought, I can't deal with this. But I didn't really want to get involved in whatever it was. It was keeping awake. And just as we were getting close, tragedy happened in London. You didn't really, I mean, do anything but stand and listen when he was in full flood. And then it was my turn. I had to delve into everything that was in me to, to match what he was doing. And, I, and he knew that I had quirkiness that he loved, you know, that wasn't necessarily anything spectacular, but I would be a different spin on a lick, or I'd, I'd maybe slacken off a string and do a sitar noise, and he loved that. And, just anything really off the scale was was what Jimmy liked about my playing.
0: What about Jimmy himself? What were his views on fame and becoming rich and staying true to any blues roots?
7: I don't know. I don't really live on compliments. matter of fact, it has a way of distracting me. And a whole lot of other musicians and artists that are out there today, you know, they hear all these compliments. They say, wow, it must have been really great. So they get fat and satisfied and they get lost and they forget about the actual talent that they have and they start living into another world. You know? Sometimes it gets to be really easy to sing the blues when you're supposed to be making all this much money. Because you know? like, money is it's getting to be out of hand now. You know, it's, you know, and like musicians, especially young cats, you know, they get a chance to make all this money and they say, wow, this is fantastic. And like I said before, they lose themselves and they forget about the music itself. You know? They forget about their talents. They forget about the other half of them. So therefore, you can sing a whole lot of blues. The more money you make, the more blues sometimes you can sing. But the idea is like a, to you know, use all these hang-ups and all these different things you know, let, as steps in life, you know. just like drinking coffee well, you don't drink it every day or else you go into another scene with it, you know.
0: Now, moving on to the book, Our Jimmy. There are, of course, many books that have been written about Jimi Hendrix over the years. This one, though, is just a little bit different. I spoke to the author Aidan Pruitt last week as we uncovered some never-before-heard tales and just what role did Mashed Potato play in the composition of one of his most famous songs? (laughs) Aidan, the difficulty that you have writing a book like this is to find new ground to cover, but you've managed to do it because this is a very personal book with individual recollections, many of which haven't been heard before.
8: I was absolutely thrilled that I, that, that was able to happen. I I'd sort of started this project and went, you know, I'll... I'll put the fillers out, I'll get in touch with, you know, the people who knew Jimmy well, and just see what stones have left to be unturned. And, uh, I had no idea how many of these stories have not been shared before in documentaries or in books, simply because that. I mean what I'm aiming for with this book is to get a personal feeling for what it was like to kick back with Jimi Hendrix and a beer and maybe a couple of guitars and just sort of see what happened through the course of an evening. And a split. So I uh exactly <laughs> and hopefully a split. Uh and and I mean and he also was experimenting with lots of other things too which we hear about in the book. But, uh, yeah, it was just absolutely phenomenal to hear firsthand from close, close friends of Jimmy's, like, I mean, Kathy Etchingham, who was his girlfriend on and off for three years. Um, just the, the number of incredible stories that are just beautiful anecdotes, but the reason they haven't cropped up before is because... This is not a usual biography uh, because it's interviews with these people. And so I try and allow a lot of space and a lot of breathing room for the subjects to tell their story. And, and I don't want to interrupt them because they were there. They know exactly what they were talking about. There's no reason for me to jump in and, and try to um, rearrange uh th- these incredible words that <laughs> that are coming out of their mouths and so from one person that led to uh i mean i got in touch with roger mayer really early on in the piece and he was such a good friend of jimmy's that that when people heard i'd spoke to him uh that sort of opened the floodgates and i was getting all kinds of other amazing amazing people
0: The one um, cons- that I'd- I was say the one constant feature was everybody's view of, of Jimmy, the person was very much the same, uh, very quiet, quite shy, right. very humble, very loyal, humorous, engaging company, and the finest guitar player that oh, yes. the world has ever seen.
8: I absolutely believe that's true, and. Uh, it's just, yeah, it was fantastic to hear people like Eddie Kramer, who I, I mean, I've been following the Hendrix story since I was a 15 year old guitarist trying to, you know, emulate what he was doing. And, uh, I've been trying for every single music documentary or book that I've put together. I've tried to get in touch with Eddie Kramer because I've just like, I have so much respect for him and his work with obviously with Zeppelin and kiss and Jimmy uh just all like down the line he in his own right is a is a legend and so to finally finally be able to get him on uh the end of a phone uh and i was promised by his people that i would have 10 minutes with him and i was like you know time, please if there's a chance for me to speak to eddie i would love it and uh i got 48 minutes of absolute gold with eddie kramer and uh he was telling me stuff that I've never seen him talk about in documentaries before, um, he or in England, books. Where is he, he's... Yeah, Jimmy? I mean, fifty-four years ago, uh, when he landed
0: and and first headed off for a uh, a meet with the the fabulous Zoot Money. Ah, uh, oh, yes. He had lots of visa restrictions. He couldn't really get up and, and perform, but he met up. You talk about Kathy Etchingham. He met up with her very very uh, soon after his arrival the most stable thing in terms of relationships that he actually had in his very short life
8: absolutely yeah and it was incredible the most incredible thing was to find out that kathy etchingham uh who is in many of the other hendrix books is the white whale who either didn't manage to be interviewed because she did stop doing interviews for a long time um, and it turned out that she lives here in melbourne and we were going to go and have a coffee together and chat about Jimmy. Uh, we ended up having to do the interview on the phone because of, of COVID that uh, happened early this year when that sort of came in. So um, we've never met in person, which is a pity, but she promises me that as soon as it's all, this is all sort of over, um, we are going to catch up and have a coffee and uh, that'll, that'll be lovely. But uh, it was just incredible to hear from her exactly what happened when she met Jimmy. This is one this of the, was things at the that...
0: times as well, wasn't I? I mean, we're talking about the, the 1960s, when you could do what he did, which was literally call her over, told her she was the most beautiful thing that he'd seen. Absolutely. That
8: <laughs> Isn't that a cute pickup line? I thought That's that was fantastic. Just wonderful. That yeah, They're out at the the Scotch of St. James. It was Jimmy's first night in London and uh he's just like done a couple of numbers on the stage and then Chaz chandler the manager pulls him down and says you know you you don't have a visa work permit you you need to like stop now but thank you because that was an amazing you know couple of songs you did and then uh yeah he strolls over and he sees kathy etchingham uh hanging out with zoot money uh and ronnie money as well and uh yeah just sidles up to Kathy, you know, you, I, I something along the lines of you're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And, uh, and that was it. And then th- for three years they were in a relationship and they moved together between different flats in London. Uh, and, and, you know, there, there's a fantastic moment in the book, um, where she talks about the song, the wind cries Mary, which, which is based in a a lover's spat that happened between the two of them, where she was wearing a Velcro dress and Velcro was very new at the time. And, and, uh, (laughs) she, she went to storm off on Jimmy, but Jimmy sort of grabbed the back of the, the Velcro dress and, and it just came off and she was standing there in her underwear in the kitchen uh, and, of course, that diffused the whole, uh, the, the whole situation for a moment. And
0: uh, How many then... people do you think know that that song, The Wind Cries Mary, came after that row? wrote it after that row. And the row was all about the quality of her mashed potatoes.
8: Mashed potatoes. <laughs> I don't think many people are aware of that one. That The row itself had started because her mashed potatoes were lumpy just incredible. Jimmy was used to smooth American mashed potatoes, but these were British mashed potatoes and they just wouldn't do. Fantastic. The kinds of things that, you know, 21, 22, 23-year-olds uh, get into <laughs> little Did arguments about when how they-
0: How old all of the people in this oh, story were the likes absolutely. of uh, Eddie Krenner, the photographers. These guys are 20, 21 years of age. Um, but when he arrived in the UK, and he he uh, he got stopped, didn't he? Wearing his <laughs> famous camouflage jacket, uh, they were very quick to point out this was nothing to do with, with racism. It was simply because it was illegal to wear military insignia yes. if you weren't yeah. part of the regiment which um, the insignia was related to.
8: Absolutely. Uh, that story again, to hear that from Kathy, and, and for her to really clearly point out, look, this, this was, this was not any, any kind of racism on the part of, of these British police. This was simply that in England, uh, and I'm sure in other places around the world too, you're not supposed to wear specific, uh, insignia of, uh, epaulettes or badges, or in this case, it was the collar, which had a certain number of stars around it. Uh, and the cops said, uh, you know, you, you can't wear that with the collar. And so Kathy and Jimmy went back to their apartment and and very subtly removed that section of the collar. And Kathy said to me, um, you know, I, I found that I kept one. So Jimmy had one, Kathy kept one and she found it after moving to Australia, living here now, just in the back of a drawer somewhere, or maybe it was just before she left to come to Australia, but she found it and she's got it now with her in, uh, here in Melbourne. Uh, It's just amazing, these things. Eric Clapton
0: is God. Now, this was a term that was often heard at the time and through the 70s, 80s, and even up to today. Uh, He was desperate, wasn't he, Uh, Jimi Hendrix, to actually meet him. I want to be as good as he thinks I am. And then steps on stage with Cream, and Clapton stood there for, what, four minutes before he left in a sulk? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. With the uh, immortal just, uh, phrase when Chas Chandler went back backstage, you didn't tell me he was that fucking good.
8: <laughs> priceless. Absolutely priceless. Uh, and I just, I love the, I mean, these rivalries, as, as a teenage guitarist growing up myself and hoping that I would one day be the next Jimi Hendrix, which of course was never going to happen, so I did the next best thing in, in terms of, you know, trying to figure out what he was about as a person. But you just see these rivalries. I remember that a friend of mine, uh, and I would, would really, I would be so jealous if he learnt. um, it would have been, uh, Johnny B. Good. He was the first one out of us to, to learn Johnny B. Good solo and and all, uh, and performed it. And that went down a treat with the audience. And I was so jealous and I was like, okay, how am I going to top that? And I went, okay, I'm going to go and learn little wing. And so I, I went and learnt, uh, you know, in, in a fairly, uh, crappy way, uh, a version of little wing and I tried to do the solo and everything with the great bends that Jimmy does, uh, and never, never quite pulled it off. But, uh, that was it. That was the one upmanship between guitarists that, uh, you know, you always see, and it's just, it's, it's heartwarming to see <laughs> that that was happening, you know, even at the level of Clapton, Townsend, Beck and Hendrix. If he'd have
0: had his way, he perhaps wouldn't have sung at all, would he? Because he didn't like his voice. But again, one of the, the great quotes from, from Chash Chandler said, listen, Bob Dylan can't sing and look at him.
8: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was that was the, the ticket, really, because Hendrix was such a, an avid fan of Dylan. Uh, And and then, of course, we all have heard that wonderful cover uh, of of All Along the Watchtower, but also Like a Rolling Stone, which uh, just the the organ riff from that was provided by Al Cooper, who uh, was, uh, you know, he's a heavyweight in his own right in the music world. But, uh, yeah, just anything to do with Dylan, Jimi Hendrix wanted to be a part of that, and that was that was why he was covering Like a Rolling Stone at Monterey uh, and then hooked up with Al Cooper also at Monterey as well. But vocally, yeah, he was not a fan of his own voice, and it's a shame because, oh, my God, Jimi Hendrix's voice is its just like it's that uncut diamond, really. Uh, that's how I would like to think of it.
0: The Burning Guitar, uh, this came off the back of a stage discussion with, uh, again, Chash Chander backstage. They were on one of these wonderful tours that they used to stick uh, Jimi Hendrix on. Uh, uh, the thought of actually having him on with Engelbert Humperdinck, Cat Stevens <laughs> and the Walker <laughs> Brothers, uh, it, it just defies all logic that you could actually persuade him to go on it but he did go on it and they wanted something that would um, steal the headlines and that uh, that was it wasn't it
8: absolutely yeah and uh, the, the and one you know all of these incredible stories that come out and you sort of in in going in depth with his interviews you get a sense of why these things happened and also really like step by step how they unfolded so the burning guitar, uh we learn in the book is is uh, an idea that actually came from one of the publicity guys keith altham who uh a, a lot of people in the rock world will have heard of keith because yeah the yeah, yeah. publicist for the who for about 12 years um but also melody maker magazine was publishing his articles for a similar length of time as well so it was um yeah are just these really magazines,
0: by the way you, you, worth making the point that in the 1960s rolling stone didn't exist Yes! Enemy and and Melody Maker, despite the fact that
8: they were British press, had global attention. Very much so, yeah, yeah, it it was, that was something, I, I do, like, I introduce each interview to really sort of lay the groundwork of like, okay, well, this is what was happening in Jimmy's life when he met this person. And one of the things that I hadn't considered, because I was born much too late, was that Rolling Stone, there was a time before Rolling Stone, and that time was actually right up until the Monterey Pop Festival. And then it was something like two months after Monterey that suddenly Jan Wenner uh, in San Fran, in amongst the Zeitgeists of the Monterey and the aftermath of Monterey uh, that, that Rolling Stone was founded and very quickly absolutely dominated uh, the music press. Uh, but yeah, before that it was new musical express. It was melody maker. Um, and, and even on, like in, in uh, England, you had uh, Mercy Beat as well, one of the sort of lesser, <laughs> lesser known ones until they were getting exclusives with the Beatles.
0: The style, the the, the Hendrix style of the time, we had very famous photographers, uh, Bruce Fleming still going today, Joe Mankovich who was the uh, official Stones photographer as well. Mm. Talking about that, you know, these guys had no. Uh, style um, staff. They had no stylists. There was nobody to do their hair or anything. They had to do it all yeah. themselves. So y- it's just being in a position where you could imagine taking a stroll down uh, Portobello Road or uh, Kensington Antiques Market was the other one and the the iconic shop, uh, um, I Was Kitchener's Valet, store, which is where all the military stuff came from that, uh, that Hendrix and Mick Jagger, Jimmy Page picked up.
8: I mean, I, I wish so much that, you know, I could get in a time machine and go and, and just experience that, uh, th- I mean, you know, swinging London that, uh, <laughs> I've since visited London, uh, you know, in time since then, and it's still fabulous, but I can only, I mean, as I'm, you know, driving around and, and visiting these rock sites as they exist now, Uh, I sort of have to put on rose-coloured glasses and go, yeah, you know, there would have been people with bell-bottoms and, and, uh, you know, lots of paisley print shirts and scarves and, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) I'm sure it's very much rose-coloured glasses. There would certainly have been areas that were were not exactly like that. You know, it's funny because I
0: don't know whether you've seen the Rolling Stones have just opened their first official Stones store on Carnaby Street. Yes!
8: Yeah, so they're fifty years too late. Uh, it's uh, uh, it's it's wonderful. I would love to visit uh, next time I uh, manage to get on a plane and come to London. I'll I will check it out. It's um it, oh, I think it's it's fabulous. Uh, I believe Kiss have just launched a new clothing line as well, oh. and uh, it it's it's very um I mean it's reminiscent of the Apple Store uh the original Apple Store of course in the sixties uh. And I think that you know the more that bands do that and and really push to be a part of the flavor of the time, uh, the better off we're all going to be because we'll be celebrating music more.
0: You mentioned uh, Eddie Kramer. He talked about uh, one of the many things he talked about. Uh, what it was like to work with Hendrix in a studio. Sixteen sessions only mm, to produce mm. the Are You Experienced album.
8: I, I mean, sixteen sessions uh, f- for anyone who's been in a recording studio, uh, it it it's it's not that long. Um, but mind you, of course, they're working with Chaz Chandler from The Animals, who recorded uh, House of the Rising Sun in in like one take and and ten minutes, and then they went and had a pint and had a number one hit on both sides of the Atlantic. <laughs> uh, so the, like the the precedent was there that Chaz liked working quickly. And, uh, and even though they didn't have all the material written at the beginning, which is probably why it did take 16 sessions, um, because not everything was completely sorted out before they got to the studio. Uh, but it's just, it's incredible to think that are you experienced being in my view, you know, one of the top 10 albums of the last hundred years, uh, it was produced so incredibly quickly, and then followed up within uh, something like nine months by Axis Boulder's Love.
0: When we talk about Woodstock, and you've you've actually done work on Woodstock before, previous before you did this book, mm. it wasn't Woodstock that, that uh, really brought him to the global attention of the public. It was it was before that, at the beginning. Of this era, these mega festivals at uh, Monterey, Monterey Pop, wasn't it?
8: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, f- for anyone who's ever seen footage of Monterey Pop, that came from the filmmaker D. A. Pennybaker, who's famous for not only that film, but also Bob Dylan's "Don't Look Back," uh, "Ziggy Stardust," and "The Spiders from Mars," and a whole stack of other um, incredible, incredible documentary, fly on the wall style. Uh, cinema that really he had a big hand in inventing back, back in the early sixties. Um, so the footage of Jimmy's guitar burning and it's like right there in front of you. I mean, Penny Baker was there in like, you know, his camera was over the line of the stage, just really soaking this up. Uh, and I was, I had a, it was a great privilege to be able to speak with Penny uh, back in, this is one of the only interviews I've uh included that is an old one, uh, because unfortunately Penny passed away, uh, just over a year ago, so he wasn't able to take part in this book particularly, but I did have this wonderful conversation with him, uh, all about his involvement with Monterey, uh, and, and just what it was like to be there filming that moment uh, just his, absolutely his view, phenomenal. by
0: the way, was was amusing, wasn't it, uh, Paddy Baker? He said when when I first heard Jimi Hendrix, he said I thought it was just a racket.
8: Yes, uh, it, it's amazing how uh, I mean he said that also about um, uh, who else? Did, uh, no, I must be wrong. Um, but when you hear, yeah, when somebody sort of, it's an acquired taste for some of some of these artists, and I mean I felt that way. Uh, probably about Bob Dylan, to be honest, when I was, uh, sort of first when I w- would have been like probably 15, I think 15 is sort of the age when most people sort of really get stuck on a particular style of music. But uh, that was certainly true for me. And I suddenly was listening to Beatles and, uh, and, and Hendrix. And then I picked up Bob Dylan and it was a bit, uh, his voice was, a uh, just not like something I'd heard before. And, uh, I remember Eric Clapton said something about that with Robert Johnson, when, when he first heard Robert Johnson, he was like, oh, this, this, this is a bit grating. People are sort of raving about this Robert Johnson guy. And I picked up the the album and I listened to it once and sort of went, oh, yeah, I, I I don't quite get this. But then on subsequent listens, you go, actually, this is genius. This is like. You you work your way. You have to. You make a bit of an effort as a listener as well to sort of see where they're coming from.
0: That Monterey festival, which with the lineup of greats that it had, perhaps the best story among again the many that are in there, is who's going on and when oh, they're yes. going on. And you have Pete Townsend <laughs> backstage uh, uh, with with the quote. There is no way I'm following, or we're following Hendrix. I've seen what he does in England, um, and so they flipped a coin to see who went on first.
8: Phenomenal stuff, and uh, of course, I mean this is this is one of the stories that's that's everywhere because it's just so good. But so uh, Townsend, like the, they, they, uh, what was it? Uh, said something along the lines of uh yeah if if we have to follow if we have to go on first we're pulling out all the stops and the who oh my god yeah the who went on first um and and they ripped through their entire like equipment and they had the 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 powder bombs at the back there um i did watch a piece of this yesterday Mm.
0: on uh on youtube where You know, you've got Tanzan trashing the guitar at the end, and kicking the drums over. I mean, they knew they had to do something there to ensure that at the end of the day, the first memory that people had of that special day was of their performance and not of what was coming up.
8: Absolutely right. And, uh, I mean, I I love that too. I mean, I'm a huge fan of The Who. Uh, Just, like what they were able to, to do in in that auto destruction way. Uh, it's, it's almost, um, like it, it really, it was revolutionary because you know, we're, we're only 10 years after this is 1967. So we're 10 years post Elvis, who was getting in trouble for wiggling his hips. So smashing and humping the amps and doing all the things <laughs> that, that Jimmy was doing, following the Who um those two bands uh for me they're the standout performances of 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 monterey and and potentially in terms of the fact that they were filmed and done so beautifully by penny baker uh, two of the greatest uh live performances that have ever been captured on film
0: you mentioned the uh the eroticism of the of the performance and that fell nicely into how they actually With a touch of brilliant 60s PR, Keith involved in this again, Mm. how they got off the tour with the monkeys? Somebody thought it would be a great idea to put them on with uh, an audience of (laughs) 10 and 11 year old kids. Uh, But it was the story about the daughters of the American Revolution objecting to his erotic performance. It was all completely made up.
8: There was no involvement whatsoever from the daughters of the American Revolution. (laughs) They were a real organization, but this again is looking looking them up. It's fantastic the the way that I mean Keith Altham is I mean he's a marketing genius, Uh, and so he was the one that suggested that Jimmy, you know, if you want to top the Who, maybe you know the next best thing is to set fire to your guitar. And he was joking, but then of course. You know, Chaz Chandler turns around to one of the roadies and says, "Go out and get some lighter fluid, will you?" And then, of course, Jimmy set fire to his guitar. So uh, then, when Jimmy was was pushed to do, because he didn't want to do it too with the monkeys, but Mike Jeffries, who was sort of the money side of things with management, uh, insisted because you know this is a lot of people that are going to see you. Uh, bums on seats, eyeballs are on you. Doesn't matter that they're 10 year olds and, uh, it was a disaster. So, uh, they needed to find a way to get Jimmy off the tour and not to lose any face and, and Keith Altham said, uh, okay, well, we're, we're just going to say that the, the Puritans had a major issue with the sexualization of your act. And, and so the headline, uh, that was in new musical express was uh effectively you know Hendrix uh thrown off monkeys tour uh <laughs> due to you know outrageous sexualized uh performance <laughs> uh thanks to these ab- like abject uh you know uh well objections from this organization the daughters of the american revolution and that name of that the name of that organization just conjures up so many images in my mind. And I'm sure it was the same for people reading the article that, uh, it, it sounds like a group that would be really upset about anything sexy. And, uh, it just, I don't know, I, I would love to offend. Uh, I, I quite like offense. I think it's, I think, you know, it, when done well, it's wonderful. And I think that this was a case of, uh, of saying that it was so offensive when in fact. Uh, it was simply just that the audience wasn't responding, and they were they were effectively booing Jimmy and saying, "We want the monkeys! We want the monkeys!" Couple more things before we uh, we conclude.
0: The book the book comes alive when you get these very personal uh, experiences. Bruce Fleming uh, again, very very famous photographer, still working very much today mm. as well. Um, he was talking about back in the early days in, in 67, after he'd just arrived, he had nowhere to go. So they all, or he invited him round to spend Christmas in a place <laughs> called Gray's Inn Road, which if you know London, it's not far from Fleet Street. Um, and he's all he said was, uh, yes, you, you asked him a couple of questions about what can you remember about, and of course he could remember nothing. Uh, mm. We had two great days, ate, drank, smoked dope, listened to records. <laughs> and the other big thing at the, the time, the number of people that mentioned that they sit in in the evenings, and played Monopoly,
8: Risk, yeah. Twister,
0: and board games.
8: Amazing, really phenomenal. Just how like Jimmy's life as soon as he left the flat was so intense. It was tour, 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 recording straight to another tour. Off we go. So when he had a chance to kick back and relax, he he just. He loved it. I mean, he he loved Coronation Street. He loved Batman. The theme from, uh, in fact, it is the theme from Coronation Street creeps in just ever so subtly uh, in into one of the tracks on Electric Ladyland. And uh, just these really mundane things that if it was anyone else, you'd go, yeah, righto. Well, that's cool watching Coronation Street. But it's Jimi Hendrix enjoying... Coronation Street. <laughs> I, think and one I, other I, I just, great marketing opportunity
0: that I think somebody has missed here. And that is the makers of Matches Rose. Because I don't know yes. how many people know that that was pretty much his favorite drink. Uh, Absolutely. It's a sparkling, relatively sweet rose wine, which is still very much on sale uh, today, Portuguese. Um, in the distinctive ram bottle. I'm amazed that they've never actually dragged him into one of their adverts.
8: Well, they they bloody well should, because there's a fantastic shot of him just sculling A a bottle of of Matthias Rose, uh, with Kathy Etchingham, and they're just giggling on the bed in Brook Street, which is now the museum uh, where they've made they've turned their bedroom into a museum. (laughs) Yes, yeah, because Handel was the adjoining apartment, uh, something like two hundred years before that, and uh, he swore to Kathy, uh, one night he he, and she said he was white as a ghost and uh, white as a sheet, and uh, he came downstairs. And she said, oh, what's, what's wrong with you? And he said, I just saw a ghost. So it's a man in a gray wig. And it was only, uh, I believe it was a few days later, a student knocked on the door and said, excuse me, uh, is this where Handel used to live? And they didn't know until that moment when the student came looking uh, and then got a guided tour of the apartment, courtesy of Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> it's just amazing. It was Cathy's first question after that was, wasn't it something to do with what have
0: you been smoking?
8: yes yes absolutely and and look i mean nobody's going to put it past jimmy to have probably had a few puffs before that uh incident occurred
0: people would maybe be shocked about the about the money thing he was never really obsessed with anything other than playing his guitar i think it was bruce fleming Mm. or um uh, Eddie Kramer said that even when he took a dump in the morning, he had a guitar around his neck. But <laughs> money money was was not a motivator. He would simply go and ask his managers for money. They'd give him a, a grand. He'd spend it. He'd go back for more. He was more interested you say, in people and the direction the world was going in at the time. It was mm. obviously at the time of Vietnam as well. Um, and, you know, he just, money didn't turn him on. And uh, you look at his contract that two and a half percent of sales oh, and, royalties. Yeah. and you think initially oh, that's, well that's not too bad and then you read the next line which is split four ways split between
8: <laughs> yeah absolutely right uh yeah money was never a, a driving factor for him even even when he was in the, on the chitlin circuit but one of the things that uh jimmy's brother leon said to me that i found really fascinating was uh that leon feels that Jimmy's attitude was very much, okay, we're musicians. Our job is to be exploited and then we can go and play our music all over the world. If we're not exploited, then they're not going to let us go and play music all over the world. And so it's the yin and yang. There he, he speaks of the creative people and the management people and, and never the twain shall meet uh, in, in Leon's view. It's really, I found that really fascinating to hear Jimmy's actual brother saying, uh yeah jimmy knew he was being exploited uh he just didn't care he wanted to play the music and that's it well that was uh, aiden
0: pruitt talking with me about his book which is called dear jimmy it's a great read actually i thoroughly enjoyed it and it is out now well that is it for this edition thanks for your company i look forward to be back with you again in uh, around a month's time in the meantime. forget that we do update the website quite often we have uh, the newsreel the classic rock newsreel the tracks of the week and various other features rounding up everything that's going on in the world of rock and classic rock for the meantime though until next time from me tim cable bye bye for now